this is a joke I made up when I was 10. What do you call a cheese expert? A cheese expert? Uh, I have no idea. A cheese whiz. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Welcome to the Signal Podcast, the laughter edition. We're with the audio workshop at the King's School of Journalism. And we're hoping to make you laugh. But maybe more importantly, we want to talk about why and how we laugh and what laughing does to us. We'll hear about laughter yoga, uncomfortable laughter, and ask, can you really die laughing? I'll introduce you to a Nova Scotia man who is mentored by Patch Adams. Yes, the doctor made famous in a Robin Williams movie for making his patients laugh. Funny fact, laughter can be dated back as far as Homo sapiens have been around. The part of the brain that controls laughter also controls essential survival functions. Outward motor skills, memory, eating, sleep, emotions, and the senses. David Begun is an anthropologist at the University of Toronto. He researches the evolution of humans and chimps. He says chimps do something that looks like laughter, but isn't a reaction to humor. Chimps do things, they emit sounds, and they have facial expressions that look very similar to human, human expressions of laughter. And they generally occur when there are tense situations where appeasement is necessary. In other words, where there's a possibility of some sort of aggression and a chimp makes a gesture of appeasement, a laughter uh, kind of sound or gesture that calms down another chimp that's agitated in some way. I Chimps don't tell jokes, <laughs> at least not as far as I know. You've heard of laughter. Yes. You've heard of yoga. Yes. Have you ever thought to combine the two? What? No. That's what a doctor from India did almost 23 years ago. Today, you can find laughter yoga in about 100 different countries. Here in Halifax, there's a free monthly club at the Keshen Goodman Library. My name is Helen Fong, and I am a certified laughter yoga leader. So laughter yoga is uh, breathing exercises in the form of laughter, um, where we fake laughter because the brain doesn't know the difference between real and willing laughter. It first originated from a medical doctor um, in Mumbai, India. My name is Madan Kataria, <laughs> and I'm a laughter yoga teacher. <laughs> I wake up at 4 in the morning, and first thing I do is I laugh for about 30-40 minutes all by myself. <laughs> so this is my solo practice every morning, it's my spiritual practice. <clears throat> But I don't laugh out very loud in the morning. I don't want to wake up people in the house. <laughs> so I laugh very gently. <laughs> so in March 1995, I thought of writing an article about laughter is the best medicine. So after finding so many research studies about benefits of laughter, I thought nobody's laughing. Let's start. Let, let's start a laughter club. And I went to a park near my house where hundreds of people walk every day. So I spoke to them, I want to start a laughter club. And they said, no, are you all right? I said, yes, I'm okay. <laughs> uh, it doesn't look nice laughing in the park. I said, well, 
What's wrong with it? Let's try it out. So with the great difficulty, I I got five people and we started laughter club by telling jokes in the beginning, and people loved it. Our attendance started growing, and after one week we were fifty-five people. Most of the jokes were not really nice, negative jokes, hurting jokes, vulgar jokes, and people people asked me to stop laughter club. I said no, don't stop. Let me find how to laugh without jokes. So give me one day. I read a research which says that even if you act like a happy person, you will still create the same physiological response. Well, actually, laughter um, is a form of breathing. So yoga is a form of breath control training. So I picked up breathing exercises from yoga, blended with laughter, and that's laughter yoga. <laughs> what I really like most about laughter yoga is that it's a group exercise, and it helps to bring people together. Today, people are very lonely, isolated, depressed. Meeting only on the social media. I don't meet face to face, so physical meetings are missing. So this is where laughter yoga comes in to connect people, to make bring people a caring, sharing friendship through laughter. There is this one fella, and he's he's come to the laughter yoga club quite a few times since the beginning, um, and he has Down syndrome, and he's deaf. Uh, I had no idea he was deaf, um, and so when at the end of it, or even in the middle of it, he came right up to me, and he sign language thank you to me, and also you could hear him say thank you, and he went back to his chair, and I, I nearly cried, because it was just amazing. So that uh, that really got me. I was like, okay, I got to keep doing this because this isn't just affecting um, how I feel. Like I love it, like laughing and laughing with people in a group. But I felt like it really affected people who may not be able to communicate with people in the normal way that we normally do. During the day, I laugh with my staff. I laugh with my dog. I laugh with my wife. <laughs> Everybody can laugh when times are good, but life is not that way. We have good times. We have bad times. So how do you laugh when things are not going okay? When you are having challenging times? So this is where laughter yoga, regular practice of laughter yoga, can give you a positive mental attitude, so that you can go through those challenging times in a much better. Did you know social interaction causes more laughter than jokes? Robert Provine has been researching laughter at the University of Maryland for years. He found that humans laugh more when they're around others. He also found that in conversation, we're usually just laughing at statements or comments, not actual jokes. Your brain even picks up on the difference between real and fake laughs. The anterior medial prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that controls your understanding of other people's emotions. When you hear a fake laugh, that part of your brain kicks in and starts analyzing the laugh. So, 
Laughter is a form of communication rather than a response to humor. Now you know. <laughs> Do you like laughing? Obviously, yeah. Okay. You're laughing now, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Um, what makes you laugh? Uh, usually awkward situations make yeah. me laugh. What kind of like awkward situation? Like think of something recently that made you laugh. Hmm. Oh, I don't know. Just like falling, like people falling for some oh, reason yeah. makes Great me laugh. Time of year for that. I love it when I see people fall on the street. I don't know. <laughs> I laugh at that usually. So, Colin, do you ever feel a need to laugh when you're uncomfortable or sad? No. Like, not even when you're watching a sad movie or when something awkward happens? Honestly, not really. Oh. Well, the bare naked ladies get what I'm talking about. Can I help it if I think you're funny when you're mad? Trying hard and to smile though I feel bad. I'm the kind of guy who laughs at a funeral. Can't understand what I mean, well you soon will. And Colin, while you may think I'm crazy... Yes, I do. It's not just me and the bare naked ladies that find it helpful to laugh in awkward, sad, or even painful situations. Corey Funk talked to a comedian who found a way to laugh at one of the darkest and most difficult things that life can throw at you. Just a heads up, this next story recounts an instance of sexual assault, so if that's not something you want to hear, skip ahead about three and a half minutes. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm uncomfortable, my instinct is to laugh. Whenever it's a tense moment, an awkward encounter, or even something that's just downright sad, I personally have to hold back the urge to chuckle. And I don't think it's because I'm insensitive or some kind of sociopath or anything. It's just the way I process uncomfortable stuff. And for a lot of folks, humor's a coping mechanism. It's the way we process and make sense of difficult or even painful information. Heather Jordan Ross is a comedian who knows this all too well. In 2014, she was sexually assaulted, and now she tells jokes about it. I got, I got raped in Burnaby, outside of Vancouver, which is like getting raped in Bedford. It's <laughs> not a bad place, it's just awkward. $25. Like, the only thing worse than getting raped is getting raped in Burnaby. Like, <laughs> it was actually really weird when I wasn't joking about this. Me not talking about something was basically killing me. And I just feel like it's a way to process and heal. That's comedy generally is, you know, just taking in information, processing it in a new way, and, and just understanding life better. That's all that comedy, stand-up comedy is. It's funny. So when I was such a result, I was kind of like too broke and too busy to be a survivor. You know, like I, I was a part-time fishmonger and a part-time waitress. And I was doing open mics four nights a week. And so I was like, I left his house that morning and I was like, we're just gonna talk this one down. Came to terms with what happened to me really slowly. It took me about a year and it and it actually took my um my rapist contacting me again after we hadn't seen each other for I think a year and a half. Um, he reached out to me and just said like, Hey, wanna hang out, wanna do something, wanna like let's go grab a coffee and I was like Oh, no. After realizing she had been raped, it took her another six months to report. And that's when she started to tell jokes about it. Basically, I reported my sexual assault and I went on stage that night and started joking about it. That audience was not hot on that, mostly because I wasn't really making jokes. I was mostly just being like, yeah, anyway, the uh, cop was hot, so that was good. And they were like, we are not <laughs> okay with this. But Ross got a lot better at telling jokes about her sexual assault. And in 2017, she and other survivors started a comedy tour called Rape is Real and Everywhere. To Ross, comedy isn't just about making people laugh. It's about 
using laughter to tackle and overcome life's toughest issues, no matter how dark or sad those issues are. It's important to laugh about everything. Like, I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Prince Edward Island. And if you have a family in a hospital for more than two days, there are going to be times of laughter because you cannot solemnly look at your relative dying. You're going to start telling stories about the good times or you're going to tell the story about the time that one of them got stuck in the tub and the other one tried to help them out of the tub and then they were both in the tub and there's two people in the tub and it's hilarious and it's also terrible. You just... Life is processed through laughter. It always has been. And for Ross, sexual assault is not an exception to this rule, so long as it's the survivors who have the last laugh. That's Corey Funk talking with comedian Heather Jordan-Ross. I think the quintessential joke is what's brown and sticky. Sounds simple. What's brown and sticky? A stick, but I'm bump, <laughs> right? It's the look over here kind of joke. We're in such a weird spot right now in 2018 where humor is almost out of fashion now because you just don't know who you're going to upset. So what jokes can you tell? You can tell jokes about rocks or about trees or about ducks with grapes, but you can't tell jokes about particular people. You can't tell jokes about gender or race the way that George Burns and Jack Benny and Henny Youngman, you know, you know, take my wife, please. Henny Youngman would never fly in 2018. That's CBC host and comedy fan Bill Roach reflecting on what makes us laugh evolves through time. Funny fact. What is considered humor varies depending on what part of the world you're from. Americans make a lot of sex jokes, whereas someone from Singapore might make more superiority jokes. Europeans joke more about things that make us anxious, like illness or marriage. Brits tend to enjoy wordplay in particular. Like when a patient goes to the doctor's office and says, Doctor, I've got a strawberry stuck up my bum. And the doctor replies, Don't worry, I've got some cream for that. (laughs) Sorry. Stay tuned, we're going to take a closer look at culture and humor. That's still to come. Thanks for that mental image, Nick. Some people have a very distinctive laugh. There's the point at ha ha of Nelson Muntz in The Simpsons, or the, or the evil ha a la Dr. Evil. Here at the University of King's College, There's one laugh that everyone knows. It booms. It echoes down the halls. It announces its owner's arrival long before she enters a room. The outrageous cackle belongs to Dr. Laura Penny. She teaches philosophy at King's, and she's known around campus for her wild sense of humor, and even wilder laugh. She spoke with Chelsea Rosansky, and there were a few laughs. The first time that I encountered your laugh, I was in first year and Mm. I went to an evening lecture Mm. and you were sitting in the corner of the room Mm. taking swigs out of a Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) What lecture was this? I don't remember the lecture, but I remember you so acutely like taking (laughs) (laughs) 
saying I'm interfering with the learning process. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> You were like taking swigs out of a flask and just laughing the entire time. And I remember thinking, like, who let this person? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I thought, is this person allowed? Which is interesting, right? Because it kind of leads to the question of why is academia so serious? Why would someone having a good time at a night lecture be so strange that you would wonder if security was coming to get rid of me? Which I really did. Yeah. The thing I got in trouble the most uh, for as a child was laughing inappropriately or making inappropriate noises in venues like church and school. Uh, I was too Kantian to like shoplift. Uh, (laughs) So my social transgression was finding things amusing. You said that the first time you encountered the term spectacle was when your mom told you to stop making one of yourself? Yes. Did you ever heed her advice? Um, apparently not, no. <laughs> and I should say, right, like, I love my mom very much, and I'm pretty sure the feeling is mutual. Uh, so when she would say things like that, it was because she didn't want me to attract a kind of, like, negative attention. She didn't want other kids to make fun of me as much as they invariably did. She was trying to protect me in a way, but no, I've remained fairly loud and (laughs) outspoken since childhood. (laughs) So, (laughs) sorry, mom. (laughs) And was it for your laugh that kids made fun of you? Oh, everything they made fun of me for. Being a huge nerd, uh, being really into school, being bullied or ostracized as a child only made me more of a awesome monster. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was given a hot tip mm. that if I wanted to make you laugh, mm. I had to ask you about Satan and Baudelaire. <laughs> Baudelaire describes laughter as essentially satanic talks about laughter as a kind of revolt against everyday life. Uh, I don't know that I'm that metal. Like, I don't think I'm always <laughs> laughing in a kind of satanic way. That would seem grossly self-flattering on my part. Uh, but, like, right. So what you're saying is that like people don't think that they've seen the devil when, when they see you laughing <laughs> in a lecture. <laughs> That was Chelsea Rosansky speaking with King's professor, Laura Penny. Funny fact, 103. That's the ideal number of words in a joke. Want to know why? Yeah, well, me too. The Time Magazine article I read didn't elaborate. I guess if they explained it, it wouldn't be a funny fact. Hey, Grace. Hey. What do Canadian students get on their report cards? I don't know. What do they get? Mostly A's. Ha. <laughs> it's a good one. Here's another one. One day, the, in- the German ambassador is visiting Queen Victoria. They sit down for lunch with the translator, and the ambassador starts talking and talking and talking. But the translator isn't doing anything. Queen Victoria eventually gets frustrated and asks the translator why he isn't doing his job. 
The translator replies, pardon me, your majesty, but I'm waiting for the verb. <laughs> I don't get it. Well, in German, the verb usually goes at the end of the sentence. Aha! As we heard earlier, research shows that sense of humor can be affected by culture. We sent Lemma El Azraq to find out more. Hi, my name is Sasha. I'm here with my husband, Stefan. We are both from Russia. My name is Ivan, and I'm from Uganda. Hi, I'm Yusuf Sanad. I moved to Canada five years ago, and I'm a Canadian citizen now. And uh, where are you originally from? Egypt. What's the difference between sense of humor here and sense of humor in your country of origin? It's a huge difference between like joking around in different countries. Like when I first moved here, I, I used joking around as like a method to break ice between people I didn't really know what. And it didn't really always turn out well and sometimes people didn't get the jokes, but mm-hmm. then sometimes other people actually got it and it became like a really good icebreaker between people. Did you feel like you had to readjust your jokes? Not readjust, but just like, you know, explain a little bit more. Like I, they would just not get it right away. I had to explain the joke and that just kind of kills the kind of kills the joke in the end but yeah at the beginning um i used to have uh friends that would always make jokes about um let's say how someone almost nearly died or like a, a situation that would that turned out well but within a different circumstance would have been potentially harmful to someone so you find that within my culture for example those are the things that you'd really try your best to stay away from making those kinds of jokes because in many instances, between the humor that you could make out also and the potential fatality of an event could be a mere circumstance of events, for example. The Russian humor is very satirical, so we have a lot of satire. Um, Because if you're not laughing at at stuff, at bad stuff happening in your country, so... What, what 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 could you do? So the humor is a coping mechanism. Would you say that comedy is universal? I would say that in the most um, generic topics, it's probably universal. But when it gets more on the um, more precise, for example, in Russia, you would have a lot of jokes about... Uh, men and their mothers-in-laws, which have a negative connotation. In some cultures, I would assume, because it's not such a widespread um, situation for a man to have a negative relations with her, with his mother-in-law, it wouldn't be applicable. People wouldn't, wouldn't understand. You were saying that humor is used as a coping mechanism. Would you say that it's used as a coping mechanism for you guys as well? Um, yes, um, it's uh, it's been used as a coping mechanism through the different times that of, of challenge that many of the Ugandan communities are faced. Yeah, humor is definitely a kind of coping mechanism, especially in Egypt. The couple of last couple of years, I think seven years ago, was the Egyptian Revolution, and people were coping with the whole the the problems that was going that were going on back then. There's also a political joke in Egypt. Yeah. Not just a political joke, but it's just a funny one. It's uh, three president, the British prime minister uh, and the French uh, French president mm-hmm. and the Egyptian president all in the plane. Mm-hmm. And they told them it was going to be like a competition. So we're going to fly over a country and you're supposed to guess which country it is. Mm-hmm. So 
the British Prime Minister put his hand like you have to put your hand out of the plane and then you have to like feel the air and then see if it's like this your country or not. So the British Prime Minister put out his hand. He's like, yeah, I hit the Big Ben, so I know it's it's the UK. And then the French president said like, oh, I put my hand out and I hit the Eiffel Tower. I know it's the it's I know it's uh, France. And the Egyptian president put his hand out and then he put it back and he's like, yeah, I know this is Egypt. They asked him why. He's like, because I lost my watch. Someone stole my watch. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, a that's a cool one. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was Lema El-Ezrek speaking with Sacha Gromova and Stefan Polensky from Russia, Ivan Maverick from Uganda, and Youssef Sanad from Egypt. Funny fact. The scientific term for the study of the physiology of laughter is called gelatology. So when the Joker is laughing at Batman's expense, here's what happens gelatologically. Muscles throughout his face and body stretch, his heart speeds up, and his blood pressure increases. And he starts breathing faster, sending more oxygen to his tissues. His laugh creates a sort of safety valve that shuts off the flow of stress hormones and his fight-or-flight response to stress, anger, or hostility. Maybe that's why Batman put him back in Arkham Asylum. Grace, have you ever laughed so hard you thought you were going to die? I have, in fact. I've also heard people say you're killing me in response to a really funny joke. Occasionally it's a plot element in a movie or TV show, like in that Monty Python sketch where a man writes a joke so deadly and funny they use it as a weapon. This man is Ernest Scribbler, writer of jokes. In a few moments he will have written the funniest joke in the world and, as a consequence, he will die laughing. <laughs> Movies and TV can sometimes play a little loose with the truth. Can you actually die from laughing in real life? That's what I wanted to know. So I talked to Dr. John Graham Poole. He's a retired pediatric oncologist living in Antigonish. He worked with kids with cancer for his whole career. His mentor is Patch Adams, the doctor famous for making his patients laugh. There is a movie starring Robin Williams made about him. I asked John whether it's possible to laugh so hard you die, but what he had to say about laughter in the face of death turned out to be more interesting. I certainly hope that I pause in mid-laughter to stop breathing, stop my heartbeat, and continue on my merry way wherever we're all going. Now, is there, a, uh, <laughs> is there any way to prove that? No. I may or may not claim to be an authority on a few things, but I certainly don't know. If laughter can kill, we can say we why Nile died laughing, and we can use all these interesting metaphors. Where they originate from is hard to say. The time to laugh is when you least feel like it. That is to say, when you're embarrassed, when you're scared of death, perhaps, when you're angry, and frankly, you know, when you're just really, really having a bad day. And I may say I never have bad days, as my good mentor Patch Adams taught me. You, John, are never again going to have a bad day because that was his mantra. I will say, I hope to die laughing, whether or not laughter caused me to die or realizing I'm about to die caused me to laugh. One of the best medicines in my book after 40 years of practice and a whole bunch of years of learning is laughter. Now, does it 
cure anything. Well, we could get into a big digression about what healing and curing mean, but it's a very, very crucial form of healing. And we do it ourselves. Patients, my children, taught me to laugh. They taught me to lighten up, Doc. They don't need to be solemn around me. They just said, Doc, it's all right. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be okay. I'm a bit worried about my mum and dad because it looks like I'm going to kick the bucket. No, really. 15-year-old say that to me, no problem at all. And I'd say, you're right, good lesson, thank you. I need to lighten up. And I will tell you, for example, about Joey. Joey is a seven-year-old boy that I cared for up until his death. When his mother realized he was going to die, knew because I told her, she said, I want you to tell him. She said, I want you to tell him, square with him. But, of course, it was hard to do that. You don't normally tell eight-year-olds that they're going to die. However... She asked me to do, and I made the commitment, and I decided, you're right. He knows he's going to die. It's just that he didn't know he was allowed to talk about it. See, he knew, I'm going to die. But he never put it like that, either, probably even to himself, within him. So I felt like he had a right to hear it, and let's get it out of the way so then you can enjoy the rest of your life, really. I told him, and it was very difficult, I'm actually looking at a piece I wrote about it. Uh, this is the poem. I, I write a lot of poetry. And I write them for myself, by the way, to, as requiems to children and others that I've known. Joey, you're going to die. Go to heaven. Words lost in his howl like a wolf's. The hurling of his body into the yellow print dresses, recesses. Three minutes at least of this, this keening as we eye each other, panicked, whatever else was right to do, this wasn't it. Then, as instantly, on a long, drawn-in breath's end, Joey stops, swivels out, flicks a look, spots tears on cheeks of mom, dad, nurse, me, determines he's grieved enough, time to lighten up, knowing me at other times, a joker, a wearer of odd socks, funny noses, he spies, Memos, charts, photocopies, journals, jetsam of an urgent life bespattering my carpet. And it comes the stand-up comic, offers his own joke. Didn't your mum teach you to pick up after yourself? That's what he said to me. Now, it's not an enormously funny joke, but in the context of this awful pain, this awful uh, anxiety, this awful fear of all of us, he found it in himself to lighten up and get... Because he was looking after us. He was counseling us. He was saying, look, okay, you told me. I'm very scared. I'm going to laugh. I'm going to cry. And he keened. He cried. He howled into his mother's dress. Then he realized, enough. I'm done. I've done my crying. I'm now going to lighten you guys up. I thought that that heroic example of laughing in the face of death. And I can't ask for a more spiritual That's retired pediatric oncologist John Graham Pohl. He has a book coming out later this year called Journeys with a Thousand Heroes, a Child Oncologist Story. It sounds like maybe laughter won't kill you, and it might not cure all that ails you, but it might just make your time on Earth that much more enjoyable. I guess Donald O'Connor had it right in this tune from Singing in the Rain. Make them laugh, make them laugh Don't you know everyone wants to laugh <laughs> My dad said be an actor, my son But be a comical one They'll be standing in lines 
for those old honky-tonk monkey shines. Now you could study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat. Just slip on a banana peel, the world's at your feet. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. That's the Signal Podcast, the laughter episode. If you'd like to hear it again, we'll be posting a link to our social media feeds. Our handle is Signal Radio HFX on Twitter and Instagram. And now you can catch us on iTunes. Just search Signal Radio Halifax. Don't forget to rate us. Thanks to our colleague Nick Frew for his research and bringing us those five-star funny facts. And to Jonah Cole for the tape from the streets. Lemma Al-Azrak was our producer. Thanks to our technician, Mark Pinio, and our audio professor, Pauline Dakin. I'm class clown, Colin Slark. And I'm Grace Power. Thanks for listening, and we hope we made your day funnier. Thank you.